Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Gather around, children. Let me tell you about a place called Alberta that used to have uh, something called balanced budgets. What are those? Well, they're tough to explain. (laughs) Uh, It's been a long time, a very long time, unfortunately, since uh, Alberta has been able to to boast of a balanced budget. And ironically enough, our, our slide back into deficit came not long after Alberta enshrined uh, a law that mandated balanced budgets. So clearly that law wasn't really worth much. I mean, the problem is that if a government makes a law and says a government must do this, a government can just go back and change that law and say a government no longer has to do this. So do we need those those kinds of legal parameters that that hold governments to to certain levels of expectation, right? There are constitutional obligations that the governments have. But this seems like something different. Or is it? That's where our next guest comes in. Now, Ted Morton is certainly someone I, I think who, who's very much in favor of balanced budgets. Uh, he was once uh, a provincial cabinet minister, including a minister of finance. He's executive in residence of the School of Public Policy, also Professor Emeritus uh, at the University of Calgary. He's written a new paper for the School of Public Policy at the UBC, arguing that we need a balanced budget law, but it needs to be meaningful. In other words, it needs to be a constitutional obligation. Joining us to, to explain all of this is the aforementioned Ted Morton. Dr. Morton, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. Yeah, I mean, it has been a long time since Alberta had a, a balanced budget or had these kinds of conversations about balanced budget legislation. Uh, why do you think now is a good time to start having those conversations again? Well, we're looking at a provincial election next year, and uh, if the polls hold, there may be a change of government. And what I've done in this paper is just taken snapshots, snapshot of uh, Alberta's fiscal situation in 2005 and where we are today in 2018. And uh, we've gone from a very positive uh, situation with balanced budgets, debt-free um, you know, deposits into the heritage fund, uh, competitive, uh, you know, flat tax on personal income and so forth. Uh, whereas today we've had 12 consecutive budget deficits in a row. Uh, we have the highest per capita deficit in Canada, $70 billion worth of debt. The balanced budget law, of course, was repealed. The heritage fund is worth a third of what it used to be. Our personal income taxes are now uh, top bracket is 15, no longer 10. So we've you know, how did we go from such a positive situation to such a, a, a bit of a fiscal train wreck? And it's not just because of low oil prices. It has to do with all of the fiscal rules that were in place in the Klein era were just statutes. They weren't constitutionally entrenched. So when they became politically inconvenient, they were simply repealed. Right. And I, I think people get cynical about, you know, these these kinds of things that sure governments can bring in laws. Governments can just as easily get rid of those laws. So exactly, you're talking exactly. about you're talking about going a, a step further and, and enshrining this in, in a constitutional way. 
Ab absolutely. Uh, if you look at uh, historically, you know, Canada followed, with the exception of federalism, the British model of unwritten constitutions. Federally, of course, that changed in 1982 with Trudeau and the Charter of Rights. We brought in a, a large component of a written constitution with judicial review and enforcement and so forth. Um, but at the provincial level, we still are just with the old unwritten constitution, which means any rule, no matter how important it is, uh, such as mandatory contributions to the Heritage Fund, those can be uh, repealed by the government of the day when it becomes politically inconvenient to follow the rule. Okay, so once we get into the, the realm of the Constitution, then obviously we're bringing Ottawa into the equation. So how, how could this even be done, first of all? There are two paths uh, set out in the Constitution Act 1982 for provincial constitutions. Uh, section uh, Sections 43 and 45. Section 43 lays out a path for what's called bilateral provincial constitution amendment, and that's with uh, the government in Ottawa cooperating with the government uh, of the province. But Section 45 actually allows provincial governments also to proceed unilaterally as well. And in this, both of them have advantages and disadvantages. Uh, I discuss both of those in this paper. So how, how would this be worded? Would this be then a constitutional amendment that would mandate any Alberta government uh, to to not go into deficit the yes now again we don't have to invent the wheel uh 48 of the 50 u.s states have some form of uh balanced budget law uh, almost all of them are constitutional so they can't be uh ignored when it's or or, or re repealed uh when it's inconvenient uh, but they're different models. Some some require a balanced budget every year. Some require simply that the budget be balanced over a four-year election cycle, so it allow, gives some flexibility uh, if you're into a recession for uh, some low revenue years. But uh, basically, it says either at the end of the year or at the end of a four-year election cycle, uh, the, you have to have expenditures have to be equal to revenues. With the exception, almost all of these rules also then carve out a separate category for capital expenditures for building uh, hospitals, schools, infrastructure, uh, which makes sense because, of course, those are benefits that accrue not just to today's citizens but to in future decades that those that infrastructure, the roads, the schools, the hospitals are there. So that that's a separate category. So you think that, that we can... It sort of includes some some exceptions into this, but but still have something that that is clear enough that that Alberta governments would know what their obligations are. Absolutely, and then the other thing that again a number of U.S. states have that we could adopt and adapt to, to fit Alberta are what are called tax and expenditure limitations. And most of these tax and expenditure limitations state that government budgets can only grow at the same rate as population plus inflation. Uh, in other words, you, government can't get bigger than the economy and the number of people in the province. And if uh, the Fraser Institute's done a number of studies that show if we had had a tax and expenditure limitation rule that was constitutionally entrenched, so had to be followed when, when Klein left, we'd still be in balanced budget territory today because our spending, both under Stelmack and Redford, but then then continuing under the NDP, has been almost double the rate of growth of population plus inflation. 
Why do you believe, though, that this should be taken out of the hands of politicians and essentially out of politics, I guess, that uh, there's the argument that if, if people are prepared to vote for governments that, that are going to borrow and run deficits, then, then maybe the people should get what they want? Well, at the risk of sounding cynical uh, on two counts, one, I, I think the majority of voters don't understand what the consequences of uh, the accumulation of deficits and debt does. Uh, in Alberta, that came home to us back in the 90s when uh, 30 or 40 cents of every tax dollar was going to pay for interest. It's kind of like uh, teenagers who run up interest on their credit card, run up credit cards that they can't can't afford, and then all they're doing is paying interest. So they're paying money and getting nothing. Maybe teenagers can get away with that. Governments can't. You have to keep providing education, health care, infrastructure, water, and so forth. So it's, uh, it's unsustainable uh, over the medium, medium to long term. Does it make it more difficult to, to save then if, if um, governments in the future are, are worried about this, this obligation to keep the budget balanced? Doesn't that make them more reliant or at least, you know, they're more likely to rely on that, that backup of, of oil and gas revenues? Well, again, one of the, one of the uh, sections in, in the paper that we released today is on the Heritage Savings Trust Fund. And I point out that uh, as it was originally set out uh, by uh, Premier Peter Lougheed, 30% of all oil and gas revenues had to go into this heritage fund. And uh, if we had stuck with that, the heritage fund today would be worth you know, somewhere between 50 and $100 uh, billion. Instead, it's worth $17 billion, and when you control for uh, inflation and, and population, the, its per capita value is about a third of what it was in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you, if if we had kept that, or even if we, if we bring it back, I, I advocate bringing it back. Uh, what you do is, you it, the heritage fund has two advantages fiscally. In the short term, it it reduces the amount when oil prices are high. It reduces the opportunity and the, and the temptation for the government of the day to spend more. Governments love to spend, right? Because spending they think is going to win the next election. So there's 30% less to spend. So that's the first advantage. The other advantage is as you build it up, uh, it then create, of course, it has earnings. And those earnings then become a new revenue stream for the government that's very steady. And so in low oil and gas years, and we know oil and gas, like all commodities, cycle, in those low commodity price years, you then have an alternative source of revenue, the, the earnings of the heritage fund, to uh, to, co- to cover the slack. And, and again, I point out that if you look at the two other jurisdictions that have done something like Alberta, Alaska brought in their own version of the Heritage Fund called the Permanent Fund in uh, the year after, no, the same year as Alberta did. It's worth $60 billion today. Why is it worth $60 billion? And $60 billion, and they've paid out $20 billion in what they call prosperity checks. Um, how have they done that? They had to keep making contributions even when revenues were low. And then, of course, Norway, the Norway uh, fund is over $1 trillion now. And again, they had to continue to make the contributions uh, even when in low revenue years. Right. And I mean, Norway still has a relatively high spending government. And I guess this kind of gets back to, to sort of the point of this. If governments believe that spending needs to be at a certain level, I guess your argument is that, that they should be honest enough to go back to, to the people and say, here's how we're going to pay for it. Yes, but I, my, based both on, on my personal experience of uh, eight years in Edmonton and then uh, doing quite a bit of reading on it over 
my years as a as a political science science uh, professor. Uh, I think one of the iron rules of democracy, unfortunately, is that the short-term electoral self-interest of governments, i.e. winning the next election, will almost always trump uh, the long-term public interest. I think that's one of the reasons uh, Churchill said that uh, democracy was the worst form of all, worst form of government except for all the others. Right. Uh, but, I mean, including this as, as an amendment, I mean, it's not to mandate... Uh, lean government necessarily. It's just to simply mandate that that governments don't spend more than what they have. If you have just the balanced budget rule, uh, that's true. That uh, if if the economy is growing and uh, revenues are growing, uh, the government is not necessarily lean. It can grow. It can grow or even outgrow the size of of government as long as the money's there to balance the budget. That's where some states have also paired the balanced budget rule with the tax and expenditure limitation rule, which in the tax and, tax and expenditure limitation rule says that the government budget can only grow as fast as the combination of population plus inflation. In other words, as fast as the number of people in the, in the province or state and the size of the economy. That's a really interesting idea. The paper is up. Again, policyschool.ca. Ted Morton, great talking to you here today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Rob. There you go. Ted Morton, former Alberta cabinet minister, executive in residence of the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary, talking about his paper published today, policyschool.ca. A constitutional amendment, not something the governments could just easily make go away when it becomes inconvenient. But as Ted Morton also said, governments think spending will win them the next election. Well, how do you win an election? You get votes. You convince enough people to vote for you. So if we're getting governments that are spending a lot and racking up deficit, you know, deficit after deficit, arguably that's what people want, isn't it? Maybe you get into a situation like we've seen recently with Doug Ford where you get an activist judge saying, you know what, your deficit violates the Constitution and a politician saying, but I was elected by the people. Maybe on an issue like this, maybe it should be political. We're not talking about violating anybody's rights by running up deficits. If people want balanced budgets, then go and vote for politicians who are going to deliver a balanced budget. I think we should. And, and both sides, I, I think, you know, play fast and loose with this. The NDP, for example, believes that uh, they need to keep spending at the current level they're spending. Come back and be honest and say, here's how much taxes are going to have to go up to pay for what we think we need to pay for. And conversely, you look at what Republicans are doing uh, south of the border, patting themselves on the back for tax reform. And sure, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of benefit that comes from tax reform. There's another sign of it, as the U.S. continues to march toward now a trillion-dollar deficit. Same thing. Look, if you want to cut taxes, then you got to figure out a way to, to lower spending to make up for the lost revenue. But it's the same thing. We want to sell the tax cut. We want to sell the high spending. Just kind of ignore this deficit we're creating in the process because that would mean tough choices. And we don't really want to make tough choices right now. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.